Here's a case study on shin splints, 315 pounds, and only have a partial chessboard. We're gonna have to go full Dark Knight Detective on this one. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right, hey, we got a busy Monday going. Um, so I'm gonna dig right into to Monday's Q&A. This one comes from Johnny, and Johnny says, hello, Bill. Hello, Johnny. Thanks as always for your content. I found some good success in using your thought process with the people I work with. I have a client that's presenting in a way that I'd like to hear you unpack. And so Johnny's gonna give us a, a little bit of an incomplete chessboard, so I'm gonna go ahead and throw that up now. But this is on a Division I school uh, defensive lineman. So he's a defensive end. Johnny says he's got a narrow ISA with an elevated rib cage when lying supine. You can see the measures here um, as, as how Johnny has presented them. And then he gives me some in additional information. He says visually his feet are flat and he has high muscle tone and tri tricep surrey group bilaterally that he reports, he's talking about the patient, he reports that uh, is the cause of his shin splint symptoms. And Johnny says, I apologize for the incomplete chessboard. Hopefully it's enough to provide some insight. Thanks. Okay. So a couple things, Johnny. Um, when you write the word full and then you have numbers, you're, you're sort of confounding your, your outcome. So just a little word of advice. Just try to throw up numbers so you have a comparator there that, that's, that's equivalent. It makes it a little bit easier. Um, but I think we've got enough to work with here that we can actually come up with something. First thing um, that we want to talk about is, is what is the coffee cup? So we talk about chessboards and coffee cups, and the coffee cups are the things that, that stand out the most. And so in looking at, at the information you gave me, you gave me one, one big giant 20 ounce coffee cup um, and that's gonna be the foot position. So let's talk about that first. So when you talk about having, a, a, having an athlete with a lower arch, so we're gonna look at the early, an early propulsive foot, which is actually gonna have a, a pretty decent arch there. It's a supinated ER foot. And as we move through this middle propulsive range where we have the the ankle rocker this is where that arch is going to come down low and so this is going to be us moving through middle propulsion to get to max propulsion so what you may have here is a is a um an athlete that is trying to stay as close to max propulsion as possible now he's a very big human being he's 315 pounds he's a defensive end um and so chances are um to move that quickly um, that size quickly, he's gonna have to be really, really close to max propulsion almost at, at all times. Now, if that's the case, this is a position of internal rotation. He's putting a lot of force into the ground already. But based on your, your measures, um, we don't have a lot of hip IR. So where is he getting the IR coming from? So now we gotta start looking at pelvic orientation. All right, so um, based on one of your other comments here where you actually said that um, when his, you measured his shoulder external rotation as being full, you said you, you put it in quotes because he's the, the thorax was posteriorly tilted on the table. So that's very, very useful. That means we had a thorax that was anteriorly tilted prior to laying him down, which is a pretty good indicator that we've got an anterior orientation of, of the pelvis. Now, we've got a confounding factor here that, that makes us question whether we've got an anterior orientation of the pelvis because you've got 80 degrees of hip external rotation. Well, how the heck do we get 80 degrees? Because what I should see with an anterior orientation of the pelvis is a loss of this, of this hip ER. So let me give you a little hint as to what's probably happening here, especially with somebody of, of his size. As you're moving the hip into traditional measures of, of hip flexion to measure your ERs, you're getting a left lumbar rotation 
on the table. So as you bring him up into hip flexion, the spine flexes on the left side. That's external rotation of the spine towards that side. And that magnifies the external rotation measure. Now, how can we say this? Well, your, your right hip flexion doesn't have a pinching sensation like it does on the left side. So we had that pinch on the left, which tells us that hip flexion stops there. We don't have that on the right side. And you said that shoulder flexion was about full compared to a very limited shoulder flexion on the left side. So what we have is we have a spine that is facing the right rather aggressively. And again, that's what magnifies our ER measures on that side. So the spine is oriented to the right, it's facing the right, so everything on the right side is gonna have this really good looking ER. We're not gonna get the compressive strategy in the front of the hip, and it's gonna like all loosey-goosey. So what we have here, based on body mass, pelvic orientation, and such as you probably got a wide ISA, you probably got a guy that has left posterior compression like nobody's business that is cranking him around, and, and he is in a right-hand turn. So here's what we gotta do. We gotta undo this right-hand turn. First and foremost, we have to eliminate interference. So the things you're gonna to want to avoid in, in training this human being, no toe touch activities, no deep squatting activities. Because of the way that we measured that left hip ER, we know that we're gonna get lumbar spine substitutions under those circumstances. So we don't wanna use those activities because all he's gonna do is give us a lumbar substitution. We're not gonna recapture what we want. So what we have to do is actually teach him how to create this, this left hand turn. So here's the progressions that we wanna talk about. So. Number one, we'll put him on his back. We're gonna start in a supine cross connect and we're gonna teach him how to start to turn left. So we've got the, the left hip extended. We're gonna use the, the right hip flexion to our advantage. So we bring that knee up. It's gonna actually turn us to, to the left and, and start our progression. Then we roll him to left sideline. If he's a wide ISA, this is gonna be really advantage. We get the AP expansion and we start to magnify this left hand turn. And then finally, we're gonna turn him over into prone and we're gonna finish that left hand turn. Once we get that, we got money because chances are we're gonna get a whole bunch of our stuff back. We're gonna start to see the hip IRs come back. We're gonna normalize a lot of that, that uh, uh, hip ER as well. We take him into the gym. So you think about our supine cross connect, we can convert that into a supine arm bar and eventually turn it into the rolling variation of that as well. Um, hopefully we can get him up to standing and, and we do standing cross connects under those circumstances to teach him how to manage gravity and hang on to his left hand turn. We can also build in a bunch of sideline oblique sit activities, driving that right hip forward again, always magnifying the, the attempt to, to turn left. We bring him up to his feet, we do a staggered stance chopping activity. Again, we're teaching him to continue to, to create the yielding action on that posterior left-hand side, get some expansion there, and get him turned in into the left. Sideways sled drags um, to the left is gonna help us emphasize that left turn as well. And if you were paying attention to last Friday's video, we're gonna put him in a right-handed suitcase carry now. Hopefully we've acquired enough hip flexion under these circumstances and we can start to load a contralateral split squat or even a Jefferson split squat under these circumstances. He's a big dude. We want to give him some load and the Jefferson is a great way to do that. Um, eventually we want to start to think about dynamics. We've got to start to load some of these connective tissues and, and rebuild this yielding strategy. So we're going to start with some A marches. That'll eventually become some variation uh, of an A skip. And then we can 
think about using uh, something a little bit more dynamic. And so we're gonna have them run uphill on boxes and to capture some of this yielding strategy so we can start to introduce that. But again, by moving him up levels, because he's such a big guy, he doesn't have to absorb all that stress into the connective tissues too quickly. But eventually we want him to be able to do so. So we want him to be able to bounce across the ground a little bit. Again, he's 315 pounds, so we take this with a grain of salt as to how dynamic we're gonna make this. But like a triple triple A hop or something like that is, you know, if you could get him to do that, that'd probably be great. Um, but again, he's a big dude, so you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to kind of figure out how dynamic you're gonna make these things. So Johnny, this is actually a, a great little chessboard to work on. It demonstrates the value of, of the things that stand out, those coffee cups that we start with, and then we can start to see the relationships that we've built from there. So thank you, Johnny, for the question. Um, I hope that's useful. Uh, if you have any other questions, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Knee pain is often not a knee problem, but rather a knee result. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Already been on mentorship calls this morning. Very exciting. Um, big clinic day today too. So let's go ahead and dive into today's Q&A. And this comes from Vicky. Vicky says, hi, Bill. Hi, Vicky. Hoping you provide some recommendations for my knee issues. I consistently feel pain in the front of my knees with any form of lunge or split squat. I've stretched my quads a lot in an effort to reduce the pressure on my knees, but it doesn't seem to impact it. I'm pretty flexible otherwise, as I can touch my toes easily and squat heels to butt without pain. So I'm a little confused as to why the pain only shows up with my single leg exercises. Okay, so Vicki, this is really actually some, some good information. We're gonna make a leap here. Um, to a small degree since we didn't get a lot of information, but you did give us some good stuff. Um, with the heels to button and the toe touch, we're gonna make an assumption that, that you represent a narrow infrasternal angle um, archetype. And so under those circumstances, what you're gonna have is a bias towards an eccentric pelvic outlet, which is gonna bias you towards external rotation and an inhaled position. And so oftentimes when people are lowering themselves into a, a split squat or any squat for that matter, um, they have to be able to capture enough internal rotation or enough exhalation bias and concentric orientation of that pelvic outlet um, to create enough internal pressure to distribute load evenly um, through, throughout the, the body. Um, so what this looks like on the pelvis is that if we're biasing you towards an inhale position, so there's your narrow IPA there, we have an eccentrically oriented pelvic outlet, so we have a lot of expansion in this downward direction. That's why you're such a good squatter and a toe toucher. But as you're passing through this middle range in the split squat, what we have to have is we have to have this exhaled position of the pelvis, which widens that, that IPA, nutates the sacrum, and that's what allows that concentric pelvic diaphragm to push upward. So if we get that push upward internally, it makes life a whole lot simpler because now we don't have to rely on extremity force to try to produce all the force to, to lower us down and then press us back up. So what happens is if you have to rely on that extremity force, that's where you're getting that extra load on your knees that you don't like. And the, the nice thing is it shows up only in your split squat, so chances are Structurally, um, the knee is intact. So we're making the assumption that that's the situation. But if your symptoms persist, go ahead and get it checked uh, just to rule out any structural issues, okay? Now, 
So what we want to do then is we want to reconstruct your ability to produce the exhalation strategy and capture the internal rotation position as you're passing through the bottom of the split squat. So here's what we're going to do first. Number one, we want to try to eliminate any interference that you might have. So again, we don't have a lot of information to go on. So we're going to kind of make this kind of a, a broad scope recommendation. Number one, you want to try to reduce any compressive strategies that you may have. And so, so this is anterior posterior in the pelvis, anterior posterior in, in the thorax. What we want to try to do here, um, Vicki, is we want to capture the, the yielding capabilities on the posterior aspect of the, of the thorax and the pelvis as you move from, from ER to, to the IR position and then also maintain enough anterior expansion so we can actually um, capture that true internal rotated position at the bottom of the split squat. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna probably um, look at some, some gravity reduced situations here. So, so you can actually start to use um, a, what would be traditionally looked at as a glute bridge position. Um, and in, in this situation, you're gonna be moving the hip from a, a traditionally flexed position to an extended position. But what I'm gonna recommend that you do is you put something between your knees that you can squeeze and that's gonna help you maintain the internal rotation moment as you're lifting the pelvis from the floor. Now, here's something that's really, really important. I wanna make sure that you capture this bone right here on the ground. So this is your first metatarsal head. It's the bone right, right behind your big toe. I wanna to make sure that that stays on the ground as with your heel. So you're gonna be moving from this position um, as you initiate your glute bridge. If you don't capture this first metatarsal head on the ground, if you don't feel it on the ground as you're pushing, you're not going to be able to initiate the propulsive element as you, as you lift off the floor in your glute bridge, and you're not gonna be able to move towards internal rotation. You're gonna stay into that external rotation bias. So very important um, for you. You're probably also gonna wanna use some, some gravity-reduced propulsive activities, um, much like you can see on screen right now. And these can move from supine to sideline to, to prone, depending on, on where you are in this, in this process. But these are gonna to start to initiate your ability to push through the ground and start to elevate the, the, the pelvic outlet into a concentric orientation so you can start to, to capture that, that internal pressure. If you move to a quadruped situation, we still keep that pelvic outlet unloaded to a degree um, but we're also gonna be able to start to drive some of this anterior expansion. So we're gonna get some up pump handle, we're gonna get some anterior expansion in, in the front of that pelvis. So any number of activities in quadruped from, from simple lazy bears to crawling activities are gonna work really, really well. If you can work towards an inverted position at some point in time, what you're gonna do is you're gonna help maintain that anterior expansion throughout the, the sticking point, which is your 90 degrees of, of hip and shoulder flexion, plus or minus about, about 30, because you're gonna to have to maintain pressure through that sticking point as you move down into the split squat and push yourself back up. Now, so let's talk about, about creating the overcoming action with the concentric uh, pelvic outlet. We can use the box squat here. I love to use the box squat here um, because as soon as you hit the box, you're gonna reduce the amount of eccentric excursion that you've got in, in, that, in that pelvic outlet. So the box is gonna stop it. You're not gonna get any further descent. So it's a great way to start to initiate your ability to capture the concentric outlet and then start to create the, the overcoming action. Um, so what you may wanna do initially is use like a reverse band variation of, of the box squat. It's gonna 
reduce the, the differential between the, the rate at which your body drops and the internal organs. And so it'll help you um, eliminate the need for, for any rebound off the bottom because again, chances are you either got too much eccentric orientation or you don't control the, the yielding action very well. And so we're gonna kind of kill two birds with one stone here with the reverse band. Um, progress this to a touch and go, so where you're just touching the box and getting off the box, so you don't release the concentric orientation. And then I would work on an explosive concentric activity coming off the box as well with a very, very strong exhalation. So now we're coordinating the exhale strategy, the position of the pelvis, and then the orientation of the, of the pelvic outlet. Then start to increase load, but always make sure that you're maintaining your anterior posterior expansion with your, your quadruped activities. As we want to work towards your feet into a split orientation, chopping activities are a great way to do this. So we can start with a side split, um, chopping type of an activity. This actually reduces the gravitational demands on you in split stances. And then we can work towards a staggered stance, chop variation, and then progressively increase the amount of split that, that you're going to work into. And so we're, again, we're lowering you down into this IR um, orientation of, of the pelvis, this exhaled position of the pelvis. What you want to be able to do, Vicky, is get to half kneeling in these chopping activities without any sense of that anterior uh, knee pressure or pain. Once you can do that, then we can start to um, worry about load and single leg orientations like a step up activity where we're starting to really work on the, that propulsive strategy against gravity in a single leg. Um, then it's just time to start to work on, on the split stance. So you can start with some dynamic activities. You can do like short stagger to a longer split in, in uh, a static position, or you can make it dynamic with the, with the shorter step length to start to introduce that, that overcoming action. Because remember, the overcoming action is a rate-dependent quality. We want stiffer connective tissues under these circumstances. Uh, front foot elevated split squat is a great way to reintroduce your split squats. It's going to reduce the load on that on that front leg and reduce the demands um, on the, on that that lead leg and hopefully take some stress off of the knee as well as you again teach yourself to lower yourself into this internally rotated position. Um, once you can capture um, the full range of motion and you want to start to load it, I would start with the contralateral load split squat is that's going to bias you towards capturing a little bit more of that internal rotation at the bottom of the split squat. So Vicki, I hope this gives you a, an idea of how you may progress. There are many ways to get to get to this situation. This is just one representation. Um, again, it, it's a little non-specific. You didn't give us a, a whole lot of information to work with, but it should get you started and working in the right direction. If you have any other questions, please send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we'll see you guys tomorrow. So apparently there's a controversy as to whether the scapula should move during a bench press. Why is there a controversy? Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Well, happy Wednesday. 
And if, you, if it's Wednesday, you know what tomorrow is. Tomorrow's Thursday, so please join us at 6 a.m. for the uh, Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. We've had some great calls of late. Big groups, lots of great questions, uh, a lot of problems getting solved. So like I said, please join us for that. Okay, Wednesday's crunch day. Let's dig into the, the Q&A. And apparently there's a controversy in the fitness industry about how scapula should move. Um, during a bench press, so we're going to kind of tackle this. So this c- comes from Tarek, and Tarek says, I hope you're having a great year. Well, it, it's kind of early yet, but so far so good. Um, your Instagram, YouTube posts are absolutely game-changing. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but okay. And it contains some of the most amazing and cutting-edge information. Thank you for putting so much content out there. You are most welcome. Okay, so uh, he says, my question is with regards to bench press for the non-power lifter, as in people who just want to be able to use bench press for hypertrophy purposes and not necessarily to lift the most amount of weight. There's a lot of debate out there in the fitness industry as to whether the shoulder blades should be allowed to move during a bench press. What's your take on the scapular position, freedom in the bench press for the trainee looking uh, to use this for muscle hypertrophy? So that's his first question. We've got a second question that's gonna come up later in a, in a minute. So let's just kind of attack this thing. And so let's let's talk about what we actually need as the stimulus for hypertrophy. Okay, so aside from like protein intake and, and, and stuff like that, what we have to actually be able to do is produce tension. So that's on the, the most simplified level. We have to be able to produce a progressively increasing level of tension to promote this hypertrophic stimulus. And so what we're talking about is a combination of, of load, muscle position, and then some element of time or volume. So we have to have sufficient volume as well. And so so what we want to be able to do then is, is we want to progress um, the, the amount of weight lifted over time to promote adaptation. So when we talk about muscle position, we're actually um, talking to, about the ability to concentrically orient the muscle per unit of effort. And so every time you go into the gym, um, you want to be able to recruit more muscle fibers. Um, and these muscle fibers have to be biased towards concentric orientation to produce tension because eccentrically oriented muscle fibers do not, do not produce tension. Um, and so we have to keep that in mind. So increased force production is, is one of those things that we're gonna need as a representation of this increased tension. And so what this does then is it increases the intramuscular, so the, 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 the pressure inside the muscle, the intramuscular pressure, and it increases the intrathoracic pressure. So that's the pressure inside of, of your rib cage. And so the, the best way to do this is to squeeze the thorax as tight as we can from both sides. And so we only have two sides in regards to, to the, our ability to squeeze the thorax, and that's the front and the back. There's no muscles on the sides that, that can actually do it. And so if we look at the representation here, you can see that I kind of drew what we would represent as some sort of average position of a thorax. So we're looking at the thorax in, in cross section here. So like if we sliced you right, right through here and we're looking down on it. And so if we were gonna to try to increase and, and maximize pressure, what we would need to do is we would have to have a mechanism on the back side that squeezes from the back and mechanism on the front side. So thankfully the bench press does this quite well because we actually have a fixed bench that presses into our back. And so the more load that we use, the more pressure we're gonna get from the back side. The more, more weight we use, the more tension I can create through, through the front side, so, so through the pec. So I get this great high pressure, high tension, high force squeeze. And so um, what I need then 
then are, are the fixed scapula on the back side. So what that does is I take two bones, I compress it into the back of the thorax. It's very rigid, it doesn't allow expansion, and it helps me to increase the ability to compress the backside. By fixing the scapula then, as I produce force with the pecs, what the pecs are gonna do is they're gonna squeeze as well. And so they're gonna compress the front side back into the bench. So I get smushed front to back, I spread out side to side, and that's basically how we're gonna create this, this intrathoracic pressure. Now, if I was to allow the scapula to move, then what I would have, I, was, I would have an expansion on the backside of the thorax. I would, have, I would still be able to concentrically orient anteriorly, but the tension would be less because the intrathoracic pressure is much, much less. And so this is where your lower qualified lifters tend to be. It's like they can't produce the coordinative effect that is necessary to increase the intrathoracic pressure. So they don't recruit as much muscle fiber, they don't coordinate well, they don't create as much um, compression and therefore less tension, so they're not as strong they don't have as much hypertrophy, but over time what they do is they learn to coordinate these things and they get better and better and better over time. And so um, if you think about how a bench pressure, this is exactly how a bench pressure works. So a bench pressure um, can't lift any weight. What it does is it magnifies the compressive strategy in the lifter. So the more weight that you put on the, on the shirt, the more compression, the more tension there is in the shirt, it squeezes me tighter. If I can ramp up that intrathoracic pressure, guess what? My force production goes up because intramuscular pressure goes up and that's how you produce force. Now, so Tarek has a second question and he says, um, is there a preferred way to do this? So he's talking about the this, this scapular position that can potentially reduce the compressive strategy associated with the down and back position that is generally advised for lifting the max amount of weight. So is there a better way to do this so we don't compress? Um, if the goal is hypertrophy, absolutely not. Um, increased compression is this mechanism that we need to continuously ramp up the amount of tension that we're producing in the muscle itself. Now, you can still train, you can still allow the scapula to move, but expect less in regard to the outcome per unit of effort. So you can still strategize exercise selection. So, so you know, if you, if you did a bench press, first in your, in your program, you can do other activities that are less compressive, that can promote some expansion and some, some reorientation. But ultimately what you're gonna do is we have to consider the, the strength of the stimulus. So what stimulus do you want to, to, to be um, prioritized based on the resources that are available? So if hypertrophy is the goal, then you're gonna eventually sacrifice something. And usually what it is, is you're gonna increase the compressive strategy, you're gonna lose range of motion over time, and, and so ultimately, um, again, it, it, it's the trade-off. You get to decide. So some people are satisfied with a certain degree of hypertrophy. They only need so much compressive strategy. They're only gonna lose so much range of motion. Um, so again, the more tension that you wanna produce, the more hypertrophy, just expect to give it up. Um, so there are exceptions to the rule. Okay, we have to accept this fact that there will be somebody out there that is genetically predisposed to carry a lot of muscle mass. They're really good shape changers so they can compress when they need to compress and they can expand when they need to expand. And so they're the exceptions to the rule. And these are the people that are probably trying to sell you a program that does a certain thing. So it's kind of like those people that, that promote the extreme flexibility programs or, or whatever. And they were gifted in having this extreme flex, flexibility capabilities so they can demonstrate it. And so they say, well, everybody should be able to do this. And, and I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way. 
Um, so, you know, when, when mom said that you can be anything that you want to be, all you have to do is want it bad enough, she was lying to you to make you feel good and you can pick up your participation trophy on the way out. Um, so the only way that you're going to find out what you're genetically predisposed towards is to train. And so if there's something that you like to do, then you pursue it and then you monitor for change and you see what you're capable of. That's the best way to do it. So uh, Tarek, I hope that answers your question for you. Um, in, in, a, in a nutshell, if you wanna produce tension, you wanna produce hypertrophy, you wanna produce force, the scaps aren't gonna move during your bench press. They're gonna move minimally, let's put it that way. Is that fair? Okay, if they move a lot, you're not gonna produce a lot of tension and you're gonna, you're gonna see a reduction in, in the outcome. So everybody have a great Wednesday. Um, I will see you tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Have a great day. Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. You know, some of my clients in the past, they have recovered pretty quickly and haven't had too many pelvic floor issues afterwards and others have had really bad issues after. So I'm curious if maybe creating like a yielding uh, strategy on the pelvic floor to accommodate all of that upward pressure might give some women more of a, like a, a, a tougher time, I guess, to recapture that overcoming strategy post delivery. Yeah, that's maybe one of the main driving mechanisms of pelvic floor dysfunction. I don't want to say I don't want to say main because I don't think that's fair. I think that would be a leap, but 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 it does happen. So think about this. So we I kind of mentioned this a second ago. If you put extra weight down on the pelvis, the the bones have to absorb that, and so the bones yield just like all the other connector tissues, and so so it's so it's really not that different. Now, let's put that load on there for three or four months and see what, what kind of adaptability that you end up with. So, so literally they're gonna get a pelvic shape change that's associated with the load that is based on, on how they're yielding, you know, almost every waking moment of the day, right? And so, so one of the things that they end up having trouble with is they, they will have like essentially a shape of a pelvis that is, that is, that is um, shaped like an inhale, um, that will bias the, the pelvic diaphragm. And so it's very, very difficult to create enough pressure upward. So they can't close, they can't close the, the inlet of the pelvis like they would for an exhale. So, and, and I, I have to do this with a, it's plastic so it doesn't bend, but, but imagine having this sucker open like this, right? You get a descended diaphragm here. And what I need to be able to do to exhale is I have to change the shape I have to do that. I have to, I have to close the inlet to, to drive the, the concentric orientation here. And if they can't do that, then, then you know, it's, a, it's, it's a battle of, of downward force of the internal organs on top of something that can't push back up. And so then you know, they have incontinence problems. They have like just simple efforts of, of squatting or getting up out of a chair or climbing stairs and, and like all sorts of, of force related problems because they don't have that pressure mechanism back. And so literally what we started doing is we started securing the, the inlet of the pelvis. We just took an SI belt. Let me see if I got one right here. We got SI belt. Hang on. So take an SI belt. 
secure the top of the pelvis. So you're getting the compressive strategy, right? We're just assisting the connective tissues through a passive compression. That allows the shape change to occur. And then almost, I mean, I don't want to say immediately, but with some practice, they actually can learn how to, how to recreate the, the concentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm, assuming, assuming the tissues are intact. Because you know, if they have like a, a vaginal delivery, you don't, you don't know what kind of destruction you got going on there. And then if there's an episiotomy or, or anything, or it's just a tear mm -hmm. as they're giving birth, then you, you've, got a, you've got a constraint change there that you're gonna have to deal with too. But, but, but again, if, if we look at this from the shape change perspective, it's like, how do I make that impact? Like, wh what, is the, what is the deficit, which you can sort of identify when you think about it. It's, it's just like working with a, like a, a, a narrow ISA person that, that can't create the, the concentric orientation when they jump off a box and their knees kind of go together. Um, you're gonna see similar behaviors with, with, like I said, squats and step-ups and having them trying to get it a half, half kneeling is typically uncomfortable for them um, because again, they can't create the, the exhale position of the pelvis, which gives them the IR to comfortably be in a half kneeling position. So you'll get all sorts of like knee pain and hip impingement symptoms and things like that. So, so just looking at it from the shape change perspective usually buys you um, a lot of real estate in regards to, to the recovery. Or inlet, okay. The inlet is is the inlet is the inlet has to close to create the exhaled position of the pelvis. Okay, gotcha. Just making sure. It's, when when the when the inlet is is expanded, okay. Um, again, that that would uh, promote the eccentric orientation. Right, just by a normal, like an inhale to exhale representation of the pelvis. So these women are having trouble creating the, the upward pressure with the pelvic diaphragm, but I need a shape change in the pelvis for that to actually happen. And if, they, if they've been, you know, if, if you put weight on top of the pelvis and it, and, it, and it sort of flattens it out and opens it up like an inhale, they can't close it. So you have to retrain that. You have to mobilize it. Like I said, that's why we use the, the belt for the, the compressive. Um, element to, to help close the outlet so they can pressurize inside the pelvis. And this goes for anybody, just, just for the record. It's like, you'll see this on, on people that are trying to squat. It's like, you know, if you can't create a sufficient um, concentric orientation against internal forces, if I put 400 pounds in your back and you're trying to, trying to stand up from a squat, I got news for you. It's the upward pressure internally that you have to create. Otherwise, you're not going up. Hey Bill, um, jumping off uh, Paul's question, is there a way to uh, train those pelvic muscles directly? Yes. As a part of a compound movement? Yeah. And how, how do you do that? Like, um, like Kegel so, exercises or something? Say again? Are they, do you, is it like Kegel exercises or is it something different? Okay, so, so, so Kegel exercises in isolation, not very helpful, not very effective because it doesn't respect the position of the, of the pelvis. So what you wanna be able to do is you need to create the, the shape change of the pelvis. And so we can do that by any number of positions. So when you lay on your side, for instance, you get, you get compression from, from side to side and then you can create the anterior posterior expansion. So that's the advantage of, of being a sideline. Um, if you if you're having trouble creating a concentric orientation of, of the, the pelvic diaphragm, you need to number one be able to capture that position first and foremost. 
And so if you've seen any of the like uh, inverted lazy bear exercises and things like that, where you're like quadruped, where you're, where you're butt up, head down kind of a thing, what that does is it approximates what looks like a squat, um, but it's an unweighted pelvic outlet. And so that gives you a mechanical advantage to create the concentric orientation. And so, so that's why we put people in, the, in those positions. So, so if I put you, you hips up, head down, and the, the, diaphragm's un, the pelvic diaphragm is unweighted and I teach you to exhale in that position, I've just captured the hip position that I need. I can start to drive the pelvic orientation that I need and I get a, I get a, a concentrically oriented uh, pelvic outlet based on the, the breathing pattern. And so just like progressive resistance exercise of putting weight on the bar, all you gotta do is progressively change the position of the body Right, I slowly bring you to upright activities and I keep trying to drive the same strategy of, of exhalation and concentric orientation. And so eventually my inverted lazy bear, right, where, where you're in quadruped or on your elbows with your hips up, eventually becomes my box squat. So we're gonna talk about how external rotation measures get manipulated. So if you're uncomfortable with uncertainty or dirty measures, you may wanna reconsider that accounting degree or perhaps an apprenticeship in vehicle maintenance or plumbing. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Rolling into the weekend, busy day today. We had a huge meeting uh, yesterday for iFestU. Um, a lot of good stuff coming there. So if you have not signed up, you probably wanna rush over there. Um, we're, we're gonna be digging in deep here um, as that continues to evolve in such a good way. Um, let's go ahead and dig into today's Q&A. This comes from Cameron, and Cameron says, I've been watching your content for a while, and I look forward each day to learning something new. So thank you. You're welcome, Cameron. Um, here's this question. So, wondering how you get into the mindset of picturing what the orientation of the person's skeleton is on the table when you're taking measurements. I think one measurement I can picture from your videos is that increased DER on one side usually is interpreted as that anomaly being farther anterior than the other due to concentric orientation of the posterior hip on that side. Um, I know this is a very complicated process, that's probably best going over the intensive. Yeah, we probably do that at the intensive. But I was wondering how to determine which way the pelvis is tipped on an oblique axis when uh, determining if reflection or straight leg raises are true. Okay, so Cameron, I think, and I'm hoping that, uh, that we had a little bit of a typo there because you get a little bit of a misinterpretation as to what we're looking at with these ER measures. So, so let's do this. Let's go through um, how we would measure ER, what our expectations would be and then how this measure can get, get pretty dirty um, as far as, as what is the representation and then what are the influences so we can actually determine what's really, really going on here. So um, a couple things in regards to measurement and the, and the process. Um, the way you get better at interpreting your measures is to do a lot of them because again, these measures are dirty. There's a lot of movement that occurs underneath those measures. They're not as precise as we would like them to be, which makes a lot of people uncomfortable because they want black and white answers. If you can get comfortable in the gray and you can live in uncertainty and you can learn how to narrow probabilities, you're going to be infinitely more successful. So let's talk about this anti-orientation thing. 
So if we talk about normal, normal hip range of motion or something along those lines, if there is such a thing as normal, and we talk about this early phase that we would say we're moving through some form of external rotation here, we move through internal rotation through the middle because it's a reorientation of, of, the, of the relative motions in the pelvis. So that would be my ER measure there. This would be my IR measure there. And as I get to the end where I get this deeper traditional hip flexion measure, what I have then is actually a turn of the, of the sacrum towards the, the side that you're measuring, so the ipsilateral side. So that's a turn of the sacrum, it's a turn of the lumbar spine. So now, right away, I have this, this reasoning of how the spine can actually influence these ER measures. So if the spine can't turn towards this hip flexion measure, then, then I actually have a limitation in how much external rotation I'll be able to demonstrate. When we talk about the anterior orientations and how this influences those measures, so I have anterior and posterior compressor strategies that can be applied to the, to the pelvis. And so what that does is it takes away a lot of my relative motion. So now I have these, these orientations where the pelvis starts to move as a single unit. And this is what we start to look for um, when we're talking about looking at ER measures as a, as a diagnostic for the orientations. And so if I am anteriorly oriented, and let's just say I'm doing this symmetrically, what I'm gonna see is I'm gonna see a loss of the external rotation measure at the hip because I have musculature that's above the level of the trochanter that as I tip this forward, these muscles reorient their, their direction of pull, they become internal rotators and they start to steal, steal my external rotation. So right away, I can just say anterior orientation, reduction in external rotation. Now, if the left side, if I have a, a stronger compressive strategy on this left side, and that left side gets a little bit ahead of this right side, which means that the anterior orientation is gonna be more on the left, I'm gonna lose external rotation on that left side. If I, if I get tipped on an oblique, and what that oblique is, it's this, it's where that left side's going up and it drives me up and over the right side. That means the right side starts to lead. It gets a little bit more anterior orientation on that side and I lose ER on the right. So it's actually a loss of ER that you're gonna use to, to diagnose this, this anterior orientation, whether it's a left or a right. Um, and it's gonna be typically, when it's on the left side, it's gonna be a little bit more of a flatter turn. When, you, when it's tipped over on the right side, it's gonna be a, a steeper turn. It's gonna be up on that oblique, oblique axis. Now, having said that, let's think this through for a second. So there are situations where you're gonna get a magnified external rotation. So if I was looking at my archetypes, so if I had a narrow archetype, where I'm, I'm biased towards that ER'd position of the pelvis and inhale position of the pelvis, right away that's gonna give me a magnification of my external rotation. But there's another way that this, this ER magnification can occur. So think about the end range and traditional hip flexion as you're measuring. I have to have that lumbar spine turning towards the, the measurement side, the ipsilateral side, to get that true end range external rotation measure. But if I am anteriorly oriented, and I lay, so I'm anteriorly oriented like this, so I, that should take away my ER. But when I lay people on the table and I have orientation, I can get this type of a turn where the pelvis is moving as a single segment, but the lumbar spine is still free to move. And so under those circumstances, what I'm gonna start to get is this magnification of the external rotation measure. So if I have a spine that is facing the right and I've got an orientation of the pelvis that is turned strongly to the right and I take somebody into a hip flexion measure and they turn towards that hip flexion, 
as I measure it, I can get a magnification of my ER. So when I try to turn someone into external rotation and the pelvis turns towards me, what I'm gonna get is this magnification of external rotation. So this is where you're gonna get a lot of these measures of 80 degrees, sometimes up to 90 degrees of, of hip ER, which is associated with the turn of the spine, even though the pelvis is anteriorly oriented. Now, so how do we confirm what's going on on the table? So. We, we have imprecision that we're dealing with, we have uncertainty that we're dealing with, but we do have checks and balances. So the checks and balances are looking at all of your external rotation measures. So remember that flexion, abduction, and traditional external rotation measures are all ER. I have to have all three of those go through, go to normal measurement to assure that I have normal expansion capabilities where I need expansion to get my ERs. If one of those is in deficit, then all three are gonna be a deficit. So even though two might look like they're normal and one is in deficit, all three are, are, are in deficit. I just have a compensatory strategy that is allowing that measure to look like it is full on the table. I also have my iterations to fall back on. So now I have the same side hip and the same side shoulder that I can compare to and I can assure that I'm measuring correctly. So this is how you start to refine your measurements. And we take these dirty, imprecise measurements and we make them more precise and allows us to intervene more effectively. You're still gonna be wrong sometimes, just accept that fact. Our goal is to get better at this stuff so we can narrow the probabilities and get more effective with the interventions that we choose and then gain success along the way. So now I'm gonna show you a clip from yesterday's Coffee and Coaches conference call where Andrew helped us out and he actually went through a little bit of a demo where we can actually feel how the spine provides this compensatory strategy for internal and external rotation of the hip. So watch through that and then we'll be right back. So, so let's talk about the opposing extreme. Okay. People that rely on lumbar flexion for their ER show 80, 90 degrees of hip external rotation at 90 degrees where we, where we would traditionally measure. Okay. Okay. So that's the, literally the exact opposite of what you're describing. So that's how you know you got rollback on the table. Like when, you, mm -hmm. when you're measuring somebody, you know, uh, you bring them up to 90 degrees of, of traditional hip flexion and you're doing your ERIR and you go, wow, look at the ER on this guy. That's somebody that's got a spine that's actually turning towards you as you're measuring that, that hip ER. You will always have external rotation and internal rotation. It just might not be where you want it to be. So when we measure at the hips and things like that, um, and you see the extreme representation that like we're just talking about, that's usually coming from somewhere else. That's changing the orientation that allows the extreme to be demonstrated where you would traditionally measure. So, Got so that, it. that is something that you have to pay attention to. That's why orientation is so important to understand as to how it influences the measurement outcome. People blame things like laxity, right? They say, oh, you have a lax whatever, when the reality is it's just I'm pointing the socket in a direction where those constraints that normally would, would restrict motion don't matter anymore. It's like untwisting a twisted towel, right? And so it, it becomes loose, if you will. Right. Okay. So just, just pay attention to those. I'm understanding correctly. You're saying 
oftentimes there's there's a substitution um, occurring at the spine in the in the person with extra excessive external rotation, right? Um, and then the internal rotation, the excessive internal rotation would be more like just because of the way the hip socket is oriented, there's just more IR available at that 90 degrees. Yeah. You want to, you want to feel it? You want to feel it? Um, sure. So here's what I want you to do. Um, you're going to have to stand on one leg. So this is going to be, we're, we're also assessing your amazing balance, Andrew, and we will all pass judgment on your physical capabilities and we will superimpose that onto your personality. Okay. All right. So pick up your left knee for me. Okay. Pick up um, my left knee. Yeah. Pick up your left knee, like to hip, hip, hip bend to 90 degrees. Okay. Oh, you, your camera's backwards. Okay. All right. Now do this. So what I want you to do, boss, is I want you to crank that leg as far into interrotation as you possibly can and let your body just kind of follow where it wants to go. Keep going. Keep going. You feel your back arch? Yeah. Okay. Now go the other way. So now rotate into, into ER. And I'm going to make you make a right-hand turn. What? Or left-hand turns. It's your left leg, right? You see how the spine turns as you move it? Yes. Okay. Guess what happens when you measure somebody on the table? Their spine moves like that. Yeah, it does. Now, the degree to which, based on what their, what their orientation will be, right? So if I have somebody that shows me, you know, 60 plus degrees of hip internal rotation, I got news for you. You got a spine that's turning away from that hip. That's what it's allowing it to do. If I turn the other way and I get 90 degrees of hip external rotation, I got a pelvis and a spine that are turning that are allowing that to happen. So I hope this was helpful for you, Cameron. Um, if you have any other questions, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Don't forget to get signed up for iFastU so you can uh, follow along and uh, improve your skills in all aspects of training and rehab. And then I will see you guys, oh, hey, Real quick, uh, podcast will be loaded up on Sunday morning. So um, this was a killer week of, of info and, and videos. So um, you'll be able to listen to that on Sunday as well. Um, otherwise, I will see you next week. <laughs>